Hey everyone, welcome to the first episode of Let Us Talk podcast. My name is Sabah Sarkeel and with me I have... Brett Kahn, and we're both second year urban planning grad students from the College of Environment Design at the University of Georgia. We started this podcast over the summer. The primary reason is to start having conversation on topics that are often not amplified in the mainstream academic spaces. We wanted to expand the pool of experts we talked to in order to be diverse and inclusive, and in short, have a fun time discussing some crucial topics in the urban scape. Our first episode of Let Us Talk is on war zones and planning. We will be discussing what role planning has in conflict areas and talking to our guest, Mitchell Cypress, who has worked as a planner in conflict zones for over a decade. But before we jump into this interview, let's look at some stats in order to understand the impact of war in the 21st century. By the end of 2014, around 59 millions were forcibly displaced, out of which 19 millions were refugees, and the rest were internally displaced persons, meaning folks who are displaced from their home but remain in the boundaries of their country. War in the 21st century is a prevalent subject. Some have the privilege to sit in their drawing rooms and have dinner table discussions about war, but there's a, there's a significant number of people at ground zero facing the immediate impacts. In Syria, around four out of five people live below the poverty line. One out of five Kashmiris display symptoms of PTSD. And according to a 2019 report of Human Rights Watch, seven million people in Sudan were in need of humanitarian assistance. So since this podcast is all about urban planning and design, where do we as urban planners and designers fit in while talking about conflict zones? When researching about this topic, we realize planning essentially has two roles. One, it can start civil disturbance, and second, it can act as a healer post-conflict. To discuss these contradictory roles of planning, we went over to have a conversation with an expert that has been directly involved in the subject. We have with us today Dr. Mitchell Cypress. Dr. Cypress is an urban planner and technology designer who continually develops new methods to tackle entrenched problems in governments, companies, and communities. He has a master's in community planning from University of Cincinnati and a PhD in design from Carnegie Mellon University. More so, he has an extensive portfolio spanning over 12 years of leading transformative outcomes in some of the world's most challenging environments, including Somalia and Afghanistan. Today, he continues this work with a focus on technology and design. Before we get started with our interview, Dr. Cypress, I just want to say thank you for taking time out of your day to come and sit with us and have this discussion. No, thank you. This is, this is very fun. I'm, I'm excited to do this. So let's go ahead and get started with the interview. The first question we have for you today, Dr. Cypress, is how did you get involved in planning and design, especially in the conflict zones? What exactly was the catalyst that set you on this course? So everyone that I've spoken to who, who does this kind of work has a very unique story. Over the years, I did piece together kind of like a what's considered like the common approach, but I don't think anyone really ever does that. So the typical approach, uh, I think is kind of a painful one <laughs> because essentially you're going to go and volunteer and work for free at a bunch of different places and, you know, in, in the environments uh, or close to the environments where you want to be working and, and hope that along the way you build networks and relationships and you start getting paid for this work. Uh, that's one path a lot. Some people do. Uh, another path is that, uh, you know, it's really common. You'll find people maybe less so 
at the minute because the the financing isn't really there. But people might try to just get jobs at NGOs at you know Save the Children or um, IRC or something. And then over years, they they get high enough in the organization that they start getting these field deployments. And then they can utilize that experience to apply for field positions. Uh, I never did either of those. Um, you know, the, the reality is like, I was just, I, I went to art school initially. I have a bachelor's in drawing, right? And I tried knocking on those doors and no one was interested. Even though I was in school for planning, uh, even though I was focusing on international development, no one was at the UN was going to like hire some 25 year old from Kentucky to come and suddenly work in, you know, Burkina Faso or whatever place. And, you know, so I had to really invent my own way of doing this. And, and the truth is I took a student loan of about $5,000 and I moved to East Africa. And what I did for that was I, I saw a job on uh, relief web with the Norwegian refugee council that I wanted, right? It was my goal to be like designing refugee camps and upgrading refugee camps. And, and I called them on the phone. Like one of the first lessons I learned was like, just call people, don't email them, just, just call them. Cause they can't say no when they're on the phone. And I just called them on the phone and I said, uh, oh, I'm, I'm interested in this work that you're doing. I'm not really qualified <laughs> to do this job, but I want to be there and I want to be part of it. And they said, oh, well, we're doing this work with care. Do you work with care? And I said, yeah. And then immediately I called care. And I said, oh, I'm doing this thing with the Norwegian Refugee Council. <laughs> and, and so the way this all worked out was I ended up uh, in the Dadaab refugee camps, which, which were the largest refugee camp complex in the world in like 2008. And I had a project and I had partners and this work was going to be for my master's thesis, but it was also uh, something that was useful to all these partners. They weren't paying me, right? I was using that student loan to fund myself. But now I was essentially in the marketplace, right? And I, I used that. Um, in fact, I relied on those relationships for many years, um, building out of that experience. When I showed up, I thought I was going to do one project. I started doing another and that second project I did, I really ended up turning into a business and I built that business for many years. Uh, so, you know, I don't, that's an experience really unlike a lot of other people. Um, I find it really hard to get the dream job you want. I think you usually have to invent it. It's just a matter of figuring out how. You definitely mentioned something that's currently on my radar, which is your master's thesis. I don't even want to think about all the work I have to do for mine right now. But let's get into the second question. Before we get into all of that, let's turn it over to Subba for a little bit of context on the topic. Planning has the potential to instigate civil disturbance. While researching for this topic, we came across a project called as Homestream. It's a project in Homs, Syria, and it was announced in 2007, intended to demolish the historic city center of Homs and replace it with modern high-rise commercial building. The idea was presented to push forward the city of Homs in the path of modernization and urban upliftment. The idea of demolition of the city centre did not sit well with most residents. For one, the city centre of home is significant to local. It represents the Asian urban planning of the city and is a reflection of the culture and people over there. 
as opposed to the new proposal which was to replace small businesses with huge corporate shopping malls and western architecture when there was a lot of local pushback and the government could not achieve its goal through planning policies they took military actions in 2011 when the city was in conflict zone air strikes and structural demolition were regular sight Though the government claimed most of the attacks and demolition were focused on taking down oppositions and claves, significant numbers of the targeted building were the ones originally in the home stream project revitalization. Many believe that the Syrian government took the opportunity of the conflict to get the building clearing job done for the home's project. Now that we've got a little more context to go on, let's jump back into the interview. Given the planning factors that led up to the conflicts like those that we see in Syria, what is your opinion on the potential of urban planning's role in creating wartime conflicts? To create wartime conflicts? Um, I mean, we, we see urban planning, right, having all sorts of negative and positive effects in the world. Whether it's like in domestic American planning with, you know, redlining and, and you know, discretionary zoning practices and... Uh, you know, so often planning is about keeping people out. And there's just as well, if you look at like, what's his name, like Wiseman's work on wartime, wartime planning, right? And how in Israel they built all these suburbs that are acts of militant aggression and occupation, right? They're claiming the land, they're changing the land. And so we, we find these kinds of examples all over the place. It gets difficult and I would say it's almost case by case. When, when you're looking at a given war zone in terms of how these factors initiate a conflict. But I can definitely say that they will perpetuate a conflict, right? So, uh, like, when I was in Afghanistan for many years, uh, you know, the, the way that a city gets secured in a conflict is through, like, very traditional mechanisms, right? They build giant concrete walls, they route traffic a specific way. They put military checkpoints. And at the same time, it becomes really difficult for people to just like sell vegetables, transport water, go to school, right? Like the day-to-day -day life is, is super disruptive. And then it makes it harder to stabilize the conflict and build it for peace, right? Like how do you transform that? So one of the things that I was trying to experiment with for years was like, how could we make transitional security infrastructure, right? So like something I'd often pose to people and they, they thought I was crazy. I was like, all right, right now folks look at this checkpoint and they say, ah, oh, hell, that's, that's kind of scary. I don't really want to go through it. I'm going to get shaken down by some corrupt cop for money. Like this is not good. But what if you were somehow able to design that checkpoint that it changed over time. And one day people said, you know, I kind of missed that checkpoint. Remember like how that felt like driving through there? Like you felt like someone was watching out. You felt like, uh, you know, you, you felt like you were maybe more safe than you were before you got in the car. Right. If we were to think about like, what are those sort of individual experiences that people could have? and almost reverse engineer them to say, well, how could the infrastructure accommodate those kinds of experiences? Like we don't find that sensibility at all in conflict zones, right? And, and there's a lot of arguments as to why we don't, but at the end of the day, I think it's just a lack of imagination. Um, 
you know, like one thing that we find in like Silicon Valley with product design is a lot of this idea of like how the user is delighted and changed, but no one's thinking about that in a conflict environment. And as a result, it's almost like the lack of planning imagination combined with a very pragmatic, heavy-handed sense of planning based on immediate security needs we'll just do more to keep the the conflict going forever i mean we still have these problems in Kabul, right it's been decades no one's talking about how great that checkpoint was who who could that be uh, so rude i'm, I'm so sorry let, let me go see who it is oh man it's it's just Subba. She apparently she has more context for you guys. Go Subba. Listen, it's important, okay? I only interrupt when it's important. Anyway, let me speak about Yemen. Yemen is the largest humanitarian crisis in the world, with more than 24 million people, that is 80% of the population in need of humanitarian assistance, including more than 12 million children. This conflict started due to the geopolitics around Yemen. Yemen, like some other Middle Eastern countries, got unfortunately caught up in the mess. That was very insightful. Let's go on to our next question. In relation to the Yemen conflict, do you have an opinion on if planning plays a role? And if so, does it also play a role in preventing such conflicts? To some extent, you know, I had some exposure uh, to what was happening in, in Yemen around 2012, 2013. Um... You know, there was a lot of displacement taking place right there on the Gulf of Aden. Uh, there were these camps that were populating. You have a bunch of like, you know, separatist tribal groups. You have a bunch of different affiliations with international actors. This stuff gets really crazy because in a lot of ways, you know, it's kind of like uh, all we've, we've watched these same patterns play out in different countries for decades under the context of the Cold War. And really the cold war never went away it just changed form and different actors got involved in different ways right and so maybe the arguments are are different but a lot of the actions are the same um i don't know the ins and outs of what's happening in yemen today and and the reality is because after immersing myself and working on the ground in these places uh for about a decade I found that like I needed to just kind of change my own life, um, you know. And so since about 2014, I haven't been too intimate with any of this, uh, but rather working in, in different capacities. So what I can tell you though, is, is that when I, when I go into these environments, you know, a lot of the times, one thing that is missing as an understanding of how local actors see themselves managing this entire international political war for their own personal interest, right? So like when I was working in uh, parts of Ethiopia, which was a very popular location for proxy wars and conflicts in the 80s between the Americans and the Soviet unions, you know, the Americans and the Soviets might talk about Ethiopia as if they were pawns in the conflict. But when you're in Ethiopia, people are like, oh, no, no, I was gaming the system, right? I was getting things from the Americans over here. I'd flip, I'd get stuff from the Soviets over here. These people were working for me. And, 
you know, I have seen that same sensibility play out time and again. And so if we're able, you know, as planners to, to look at these conflicts and not just look at like these big histories around them, but really build that sort of local perspective on how the conflicts are benefiting the actors on the ground. It can afford new ways of working and creating different pathways for change. So as you know, and hopefully all of our listeners know, we are currently going through a global pandemic. How, in your opinion, has post-war planning been impacted by the COVID-19 pandemic? Well, you know, the, the funny thing is that planning is a really small part of the broader international development and humanitarian regime. I would argue that, in fact, planners have nearly zero footprint in that industry. So when, when, you're, when you're working in those contexts, most of the people that you're working with have backgrounds in social science or law. Um, there are definitely a group of people who are trained in civil or mechanical engineering who are doing water and sanitation work. But you know, town and city and community planners are, are nearly absent. Uh, I've only met a few people with those specific degrees. You will find, in terms of shelter planning for emergencies, uh, some architects. But, but this is, again, uh, it's a limited group. Uh, there is nonetheless a lot of activity going on that's like falls under the domain of planning. And I can't say that like those planning practices have been specifically obstructed in a unique way, different than how everyone else has been affected in those industries. Right. So like right now, uh, you know, friends of mine who work in post-war education. Right. So there she's building curriculums uh, for children in conflict zones to, to go to school and, and trying to help manage that whole problem. Uh, she is on the ground and will not be traveling for a full calendar year to do that work. Right. And at the same time, uh, having a Zoom online <laughs> meeting with these children to do an assessment is not going to happen. So the work just isn't getting done. Uh, I do know some people who are working in particular environments, like in uh, Central Africa, who have been there. And so they're still there and they're just still doing the work in very much the same way. Um, they're kind of isolated from COVID, but those are outliers in themselves. By and large, it seems like most things are frozen for the industry at large. Let's give our listeners some context about how critical mapping can be when it comes to planning. So could you talk to us about what role did information and mapping play in helping rebuild Mogadishu? Uh, in, terms of my, in terms of my own work, it was everything. So, uh, you know, the, I, for those who aren't familiar with the, the, the layered history of Mogadishu, you know, it was um, colonized by the Italians, uh, for much of the 20th century, it had also been previously colonized by the British. And, you know, it, like many African countries, it, it you know, became independent in the 60s. It started developing its own constitution. Uh, it started working closely with the Soviet Union uh, throughout the late 70s and the 80s. And the success of Somalia was very much tied to the success of the Soviet Union. And they were definitely one of those locations of that sort of proxy war right, that I was talking about, right? Where they saw themselves gaming the situation, different leaders uh, of the Cold War to, you know, to their own advantage. And then 
when the Soviet Union collapsed, like essentially so did Somalia as a state. And that's where, you know, we have like Black Hawk Down and, and the UNISOM invasion in the early 90s with Bill Clinton, uh, where the United States and the United Nations agreed to this big humanitarian effort and the U.S. was going to be in charge of all security. And then that was a, essentially like a, a PR disaster. <laughs> and so all of a sudden, everybody left. Uh, by 1993, there was no international presence whatsoever in Somalia. And so different groups came into power uh, over decades, all the way up to 2011, when al-Shabaab, which still remains the, the most consistent threat, uh, had been in charge of all but four blocks of Mogadishu. And they were essentially in like a trench warfare with the African Union soldiers. Uh, then one day, I believe in August or something, they just suddenly like up and disappeared one night. They all pulled out. And for them, it was a strategic decision because uh, Al-Shabaab was not good at trench warfare. They were much better like hit and run sort of stuff. And so if, they just needed to get out of the trenches. And they left the city, and they also left it booby-trapped on their way out. And so all of a sudden, after 20 years of fighting every day, people woke up and it was quiet and they like step outside and, it, and like no one was around. And it was this, this ghost town of people living in it. And uh, there was a mayor who had just come into power, Mohammed Noor, and he, uh, he saw this as an opportunity to really take back the city and change it. Um, so at the time I had a blog that, you know, I wasn't finding the information I wanted about post-war planning or really, uh, you know, wars don't end today, right? They, they just, uh, they, they transform into low intensity, prolonged conflicts. So, you know, I wasn't finding a planning perspective on how to, how to deal with this, right? There was like old school literature on like the Marshall Plan and, and rebuilding Europe or, or, you know, earlier than that, uh, Christopher Wren rebuilding London or something. But for the, you know, 21st century, there was, there was nothing. And, and so I just started writing a blog about like what I thought maybe we could be thinking about, what, what ideas one, you know, on approaches, on methods, like what's ways to apply different technologies, how maybe we could be analyzing these, these conflicts. I, I wasn't really sure, you know. Uh, and, and as I was doing the work, as I was building this work in East Africa or in Egypt, I was uh, working with violent gangs and stuff, and I was just continuing to log this and think about it, right? And the mayor of Mogadishu found this and sent me an email that was like, hey, what should I do with Mogadishu? And I said, I don't know. Let me get on a plane. So uh, essentially then, you know, it was a relationship where I, I would go back and forth between Afghanistan and, and Somalia for years, uh, working with both the mayors of those cities under radically different circumstances. And in Afghanistan, the problem was almost like there were too many stakeholders and too much money and too many resources, and therefore all propensity to change was diluted. <laughs> um, and on the other hand, in Somalia, there was nobody, 
and nothing. And so building maps, building data, just building the information was fundamental to, to getting change off the ground, right? I mean, the Italians had built infrastructure, which was now sitting under rocks and sand. Uh, there was no, like, you would find outdated satellite imagery on, like, open street map sort of stuff. Uh, that wasn't really robust at the time either. It was just kind of guesswork. Um, there was a, tons of local expertise on, you know, where resources exist or what groups know what. But there was no way to bring this about as an administration. And so developing tools and approaches to, to create maps and was, was fundamental because uh, no one else was going to bring the resources, right? We had to figure out a way to, to use what we had and gain momentum, which would then allow us to bring others in. And I know that had to be really difficult to start off on the ground with like very little information already compiled for you. Cause I know at least on the American planning side, when you're planning something in the States, you have all of these resources to pull from to get data. Um, and for you to have to go out and do that groundwork yourself, that is, I know that had to be quite a hefty task. Well, you know, it kind of goes back to, you know, just before we, we started this interview, we were talking about entrepreneurship and planning, right? And it, and it's, and it kind of comes back to that because if you're going to say like, how do I bootstrap planning, city development, right? I got nothing. What are you going to do? And, and so like you can find some stuff online, but you can also just start making a bunch of phone calls and and that was kind of the thing is like, I just started reaching out to people and saying, Hey, I'm working with the, the government of Somalia. This is what we're doing. Um, what, what can you offer? Right. And like, I found a, a company that was building a, a mobile app for like geolocated data collection. This is 2010. That was pretty new still, right. We're only four years into the iPhone existing. Um, I mean, before that in 2008, I kid you not, I was standing in a desert with a satellite phone and a piece of grid paper trying to do site planning. Uh, and it was weird cause I was on the equator and so I just had like 0, 0.0 and I thought it was broken. I didn't, I didn't know any better. And so <laughs> anyway, so now I have like this mobile phone and we can take photos, we can log the locations, we can write up the descriptions. Um, if now that we're starting to build data, we could find people who might want to buy this data, right? We could also uh, help make recommendations for, because there were entrepreneurs who were coming back into Mogadishu, right? Somalis who had left and, you know, had lived in diaspora for 15 years. And we're now thinking like, oh, I want to open a restaurant. And now if this information might help them better locate the restaurant, because they've been gone, right? They don't really know what's available, or even if we can just help connect them to the right people uh, and become a resource for growth, right? Then now we have like a, a perpetuating, like a, an ongoing engine for growth. And, you know, when I was doing this, admittedly, I remember uh, talking to someone at the American Planning Association and they were like, that's not urban planning. And because I wasn't talking about zoning or something, I don't know. But... You know, you when the if you want to develop innovative approaches, you have to put yourself in conditions that no one else has experienced. And in those conditions, you have to like invent resources 
try things and and just see what happens. And and then you can come away from that with insights that probably are not universal, but are definitely powerful. What techniques have you used or seen used in post-war planning that you feel should be implemented in non-conflict zones or countries? So I don't have uh, like very specific recipes, right? But I, I do have a, a couple things. One just being an approach that I've built over time for all the work that I do. And, and I kid you not, it didn't start in Mogadishu. It started in West Virginia, <laughs> where I was in grad school and I was working in this community in West Virginia where they were going to put in these um, big wind turbines. And the people in this town were really against it. And many of my peers were just like afraid to talk to people and afraid to, you know, uh, they just want to come document the historic landscapes for like the section 106 preservation review and all that stuff. And I made a point to just really uh, try to immerse myself in that community and not like not put forth my opinion, not have an ego, not be the expert and just really like integrate myself. And, and it really helped bring around some insights in West Virginia because there wasn't much I could do for them, but then people started opening up in a way that drove the conversation forward. Um, like they started telling me about these properties and these barns that, you know, were, were these frontier forts from the 1700s that they think should be protected and stuff and would get me permission to go on that land and check it out. And, you know, and, and like I said, there was only so much that I could do in the end for them, but that helped. And so everywhere I've gone, I, I've used that same approach. Um, I, I, in fact, at this point, you know, if I work with anybody, I, I tell them, I guarantee you there will be no visible results in my work for the first 30 days <laughs> because all I want to do is measure the problem. I want to measure the problem as broadly in as multidimensional manner as possible. And I'm not going to rely on GIS data. I'm not going to rely on, you know, whatever I read. I'm just going to spend 30 days there. And in that 30 days, I might use it as a time to test the things I learned through reading in the GIS data and all of that. But, you know, I'm just going to treat everything as a hypothesis. And then later, we'll start putting together things that we might be able to do. Um, and, you know, that doesn't sound like a groundbreaking approach, uh, you know, focusing on like ethnography or grounded theory. But in the professional domain, no one does it. And, and time and again, like, like this is a different industry, but it's the same situation. I mean, two years ago, I was on a, working with a robotics company and I got on a plane with the engineer we haven't even gotten to the client yet. And he said, let me tell you how this is going to go. <laughs> and he told me what we're going to build and what we're going to deliver and all of that. Um, I ended up going to all the factories where the robots were being used, found out that none of that was true, <laughs> right? <laughs> and then we, we, we were able to start fresh. Um, and it's, it's so like just taking that time and, and becoming intimate and building real relationships 
is critical. I mean, like the guys that were doing my security work in Mogadishu are my friends on Instagram to this day. And like, I am still in touch with, uh, I mean, with people I've worked with all over the world doing this. Um, and I, and I consider them friends and like those relationships drive everything, uh, taking the time to listen and, you know, in a, in a professional capacity, you can just build that into your process, right? So you can say, I'm going to come to you. I have a specific process. It's going to be 30 days of discovery followed by X, Y, and Z. In that discovery process, I'm going to use ethnography and, you know, X research methods and I'm going to, you know, apply grounded theory or whatever. And people have no idea what you're talking about. And they'll go, great, that sounds great. He's, she's going to do grounded theory. Like, we're paying for that. We can't get that anywhere else, right? And, and then you're much better off. <laughs> Everybody wins then. Awesome, Dr. Cypress. And with that, I think that's the perfect way to end our podcast. I just want to thank you again for meeting with us virtually to conduct this interview. Yeah, anytime. This is fun. I hope I actually answered your questions. I just try to just try to say so. Oh, <laughs> no, I feel like we definitely got answers. So. <laughs> thank you guys for listening to this episode. Hopefully we gave you some new insights on this topic. Now that you have let us talk, we want you to talk. Hop over to lettuscd.com and engage in discussions. We have also posted some questions. Feel free to add your opinions. And if you want to dig deeper into today's content, you can find our sources listed under today's episode. This episode's research, writing, directing, and editing was a collective effort of myself and Brett, urban planning graduate students from the College of Environment and Design. Special shout out to Ebony Hatchet for music production. And thanks to Letters Group for the executive production of this podcast. Until next time. Thank you.